All right, we are live, and um, today it is it is a day for you to get your questions answered and to look at my cat. That's Moxie. She has not been joining us on the live streams. I have a chair over here. She used to always sit in, and I set up a camera, and she would come and sit there, and occasionally we'd pop over for a little cat cam. But I just quickly threw a video of her uh, up from last night. Just I don't know. She was licking herself on the couch, cleaning her hands and feet, paws, whatever. There's Moxie. And that's time for you guys to get your questions in. I'm Pastor Mike Winger. I'm here to answer your questions, try to help you learn to think biblically about everything. At least I want to help you on that journey. And that means taking questions, every question, any question, and just trying to like work through it thoughtfully, patiently, one thought at a time to try to get to a biblical answer, a biblical conclusion. And that's what we do every Friday. And question number one is from Francis Chan, YouTube user listening from Japan, who says, how do you share the gospel to people with unsaved loved ones who already passed? Accepting it to be true would mean accepting that their loved ones are in hell. And let's start out with an easy question today. Um, I actually have a, there's a lot of things I want to answer to this. A lot of these very emotionally charged questions, they, um, they start to lose some of their emotional charge if you can give a longer answer instead of a shorter answer. It, and this is kind of like seems to me just be true across the board. There's just emotionally charged questions. And if you're allowed to give a, a, a thoughtful answer, a lot of times you can unpack things more carefully. You can build bridges. And so one question I would have to start with is how long are they going to allow you to answer this question, assuming that they're bringing it up to you? And if they're not going to give you any significant time to respond to it, it may be smart to not deal with it and to say, uh, I'd rather talk about where what you know your relationship with God, where you stand before God, rather than other people. We're changing the subject to other people, but I'm here with you. I'm talking to you. Can we talk about your situation? And there's wisdom in that. Because sometimes this sort of question can be sort of like a, uh, what becomes like, you know, we're not saying Christianity is not true with this question. We're just saying it's emotionally unacceptable to me. And I think that these are the most powerful objections to Christianity in the sense of having power to persuade people to change people's minds and to be opposed to Christianity is you find that it's not the evidential stuff, it's the emotional stuff that very powerfully tends to lead people. So these emotionally charged questions or statements that are that are answerable, but they're not answerable quickly because the emotional statement, it set up a framework. So I hope I'm making sense to you guys. When you ask it like this, how do you show the gospel with people with unsaved, to people with unsaved loved ones who already passed? Accepting it to be true would mean accepting that their loved ones are in hell. So the only framing we have for this conversation is, I love them and they are in hell. And that's the whole discussion, right? But when you start to unpack more details, you go, wait a minute. A, I don't know their loved ones, so I can't comment on people I don't know. Uh, B, they may or may not really know their loved ones. God knows hearts. God knows all the oppor opportunities they've heard to hear the gospel, how they responded to it, how they reacted to him. Um, there's there's a couple questions there, a couple issues there. So someone's like, yeah, my grandpa, is, is he saved? And then you ask him, like, well, what did your grandpa believe? And they go, well, I don't know. Well, then how am I supposed to answer about your grandpa when you don't even know? That can be kind of complicated. So that, that's why I don't like going there personally. It also turns into like... Um, a test. If God loves my family, then maybe I'll consider the gospel. But if he doesn't love my family, if he doesn't love my loved ones, then why would I ever love him? But yet the teaching of Christianity, you could simply say like the response of God to your loved ones was that he sent Jesus to die on the cross for their sins. And that even though they had sinned against him and they had turned their backs on him in various ways in their lives, as I have, as you have, 
they will still have to deal with this one day and be accountable before God. So I would just be pretty honest with them, uh, Francis. I would, I would be honest with them, but I would also intentionally avoid this topic, not because I'm embarrassed about Christian teaching on the issue, right? And, and by the way, the whole idea of hell, um, hell is a future thing, not a present thing. That's in future final judgment. That's when we talk about hell. It's not a present thing currently. Um, but that's another, another, another response there. So how do you deal with them? Um, I would say move them away from the category of my loved ones and into the category of my relationship with God, my sin, my attitude towards God, my response to Jesus Christ. This is what's, what's really important and we need to focus on. So we, uh, we, we tend to have attitudes towards our loved ones, especially after they pass that are somewhat unrealistic sometimes, you know, they're, they're untouchable. It's like you don't go to a funeral service and say something negative about someone who passed. Like it's just not appropriate to do this in culture and trying to do evangelism when someone's like, you know, you're saying mean things about my my, my loved ones. Uh, like this is not a healthy thing for trying to get the gospel of the person. So yeah, I, if we have to talk about it, I want to unpack it individually. What opportunities did your loved ones have to hear the gospel? What were their responses to the gospel? Did your loved ones actually have sins before God that they have to be accountable for? Okay, so they're in the same situation as you right now. How are you responding to the gospel? That's the thing. That's the thing. Um, but there are some people who they would decide what to believe in based upon whatever religion promises the, the best promises in their opinion. And this is obviously not someone you can reason with. They're, the, the bar for what they will believe is what they like instead of what's true. And that's unfortunate. So yeah. I'd rec I counsel generally avoiding the discussion, but if you want to talk about it, you need to talk about real people, real sin, real issues, real responses to the gospel. God only judges based on opportunities that people have actually had to hear the gospel, to respond to it. Only judges based upon the knowledge they did have and the actions they did, port, uh, pro, you know, uh, take. And then uh, in all this, God is holy and loving, and he will do the right thing with those people. Of course he will. But if you're asking me to like... Um, have to pass some bar of I have to say your your loved ones are always in a happy place no matter what that's not that's not reality right like that's not that's not the real world we live in and so it becomes an emotionally charged but unrealistic expectation placed upon people sharing the gospel all right Danny O has a question in the Bible it says to turn the other cheek what does that mean no one's supposed to be punished except um, by a uh, for by God, I, I'm that's the way it's written here. So no one is to be punished except by God. I'll I'll say it that way. Meaning we shouldn't have prisons or protect ourselves and loved ones. So turn the other cheek. Um, I think that this actually is a great a great way to put this question, and and it can highlight something for us when Jesus uses these phrases: turn the other cheek, bless those who curse you, pray for those who spitefully use you, all that kind of thing. This is misunderstood because people don't realize the difference between governments and individuals. So let me go to the passage and let's, um, let's look at it ourselves. Here we go. Matthew five thirty nine. Sorry, just a sec. Matthew five thirty nine, And this is question number two. There we go. Um, Jesus says, um, and I'll back up just a little bit. You've heard it, that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who's evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who, you would, uh, who would borrow from you. 
So then he goes on, like, love your, you know, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I say, do you love your enemies? Pray for those who persecute you. This is honestly one of the most commonly read passages of Jesus's teachings, but it's also not very thoughtfully explained or thought about by a lot of people. So I'm going to offer a, a couple points of clarity, a few issues of clarity here. One is this. Notice that there's a difference between governments and individuals. God gives government the ability to bring sort of um, penalties and justice, and he actually gets on their case if they don't. So if they don't defend the fatherless or the widow or those who are oppressed, then God's, God's going to judge governments for this and people groups for this. They're not defending the oppressed. This is like a big deal in scripture. And then individuals are different, right? Am I supposed to go out and act like I'm the government? So if my neighbor does something illegal, I go over there and I find him, pay me. You did, you parked where you shouldn't, you know, it's, it's, it's trash day. You're parked in the street, pay me 50 bucks. No, that would be wrong. Okay. This is, this seems like, you know, life 101 stuff that what the government can do, you can't just do all you want. Um, so keep that in mind. Um, another differentiation is the difference between what they were being taught versus what the Old Testament really meant. So he says to them, you've heard it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That's governmental rules. You know, government is, is equal pay or equal compensation. Uh, they stole $100, well, they need to pay $100 to you. Or sometimes there's 100 plus something because it was the inconvenience involved as well. So eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth uh, isn't about eyes and teeth. It's about you will give exactly what they, you know, what, what the person suffered, the person who did it will now suffer the, the exact same thing. But I say to you, do not resist the one who's evil. Now he's talking individually. He's not giving them governmental laws. He's, he's saying individually, you're using these government rules for your personal vengeance. But I'm telling you, don't resist the one who's evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other, turn to him the other also. Right now, later on in Romans, uh, Paul talks about the government. And he says that the, gov the government, they have the sword and it's not in vain. And that they're God's ministers. Not that they're always doing the right things, but they're supposed to be God's ministers in, in you know, enacting justice, punishing the wicked, rewarding the good. This is what the government's supposed to do. So Paul, who's obviously turned the other cheek, he's obviously turning the other cheek, but he's also appealing to Caesar because government and individuals have different roles and scripture's trying to get us to, to recognize that. If you're a Christian in government, you should bring out right and good justice. But then when you're walking down the street and someone offends you, you should turn the other cheek. You should bless the one who curses you. And this has to do with the different roles of government versus individuals. I think it's pretty clear if you see these 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 few things he says if anyone would sue you and take your cloak let him have your uh, take your tunic let him have your cloak as well this is about voluntarily giving to those who are trying to to hurt you to show like your graciousness to show your kindness to show that you're children of god but this is not about governments jesus is not like hey governments if someone wants to sue someone for a thousand dollars give them the lawsuit for two thousand dollars right like this is not what jesus is doing this is not about government this is about individuals then he says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Uh, this was something a centurion could do. He could, a uh, Roman soldier could force a Jewish man to carry something for up to a mile. He's like, yeah, okay, they can do that legally. They can force you, but go with them an extra mile to show the graciousness and love that there is in your community as Christians, to show the kindness and the goodness and the friendliness that's there. You know, when, when, when someone's cutting you off, don't speed up and block them. Give them the lane. Is that morally just? No, no, no. It's, it's gracious. It's kind. It's merciful. It's Christian. That's the idea. Uh, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who uh, who would borrow from you. But this this can't be a rule. Like for governments aren't going to do this. Like a beggar goes, I was on the street and I asked so-and-so for money. 
he didn't give me money. And the government should force that person to give, right? That would be weird. This, these are not government laws. Jesus is saying, look, yes, there's this governmental law, but now I'm asking you to be a people who walk in grace, a people who are kind and gracious, who turn the other cheek, right? You, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. Although the hate your enemy part, that's not a teaching in scripture. That was a teaching that we're hearing, love your neighbor. That is a teaching in Leviticus. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who's in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. By the way, rain in this context is a good thing in scripture. Uh, rain is a, is a good thing. Like you don't grow crops without rain. You, you, you have drought, you die. Rain is not trials in this verse. It's considered a, ble a blessing. God gives blessings to all people. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do that. Do you get the idea? This is about like you being um, examples. So back to the question. Um, in the Bible, it says to turn the other cheek. Does that mean no one's supposed to be punished except by God? Uh, no, because your conclusion there, understandably, Danny, you're saying, hey, that means we shouldn't have prisons or protect ourselves and loved ones. And I think, no, 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 no. This is about interpersonal relationships. It's okay to appeal to Caesar, so to speak, as Paul does in Acts, right? He, he appeals to government, but he's not going to get vengeance on his own. He's going to appeal to the government to do that. There are times for that and self-defense or defending people who are being attacked, that can be appropriate as well. But there's also a time to lay it down and to, and to, to be, to suffer and to take it on the, on the chin, so to speak, and to still love and be gracious to those who are hurting and wounding you. And that is a gl glorious thing. It's something that Christ does call us to. This isn't to turn uh, us into a culture where we protect oppressors and we, we, um, we victimize people. Rather, this is all internal. It's, it's me. I'm the one who's been wounded, right? I'm the one who's been mistreated and I'm going to be gracious and I'm going to forgive because of the love that God has given me. This is uh, not something our, our current culture is going for. We're, we're, we're interested in justice in a sense, slightly weird versions of it sometimes. But we as Christians are, are to demonstrate mercy and grace and kindness. I, I hope that this helps. McBoo Biltzman has a question. Does Psalm 51.5 teach that we inherit the guilt of Adam's sin, not just his sin nature? Okay, let's go to this Psalm 51.5. And I'll read it to you guys. And I actually have a lot to share on this particular topic. I won't go on forever, I promise. <laughs> but, uh, but I do have a lot of a lot I have shared and have thought about this a lot, even even recently, um, about the theology of original sin. Psalm fifty one five. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in, and in sin did my mother conceive me. So this is one of the few proof texts for the doctrine of original sin. And what is more pop most popular in the church is a doctrine of original sin that matches like. Augustine or Augustine, right? It matches this like Augustinian understanding of original sin. And that has to do with the idea. And if I can try to summarize, these are careful concepts and I, I don't want to be clumsy, but here we are live and I'm, I'm, I haven't had time to prepare a question, an answer to the question, but I'll, I'll give you some thoughts. Um, uh, the Augustinian view is that we, we not only have like a sinful nature, like we're, we are inclined towards sin, that we're all going to sin, um, but that we're actually born with guilt because we actually have already sinned in some sense. Catch that phrase, in some sense. I've already committed a sin. And so that that sin traces back to Adam. In Adam, all sin. And so depending on how you translate that and how you look at that that phrase, you're thinking, okay, we, we've all like actually committed a sin. Uh, some would say, well, we were all in Adam genetically, and therefore, Adam, like when he sinned, we didn't just get the um, 
the results of the sin, the fallen nature of the sin. We actually got guilt. This would imply that babies, when they're when they're even like one day old, they're born or before they're even born, they're in the womb, they're, they're, they're little humans, they've already done something they're guilty of. Now, I think this is actually not biblical. So you might expect me to defend that doctrine here, that, that understanding of original sin, and I'm actually not going to. I, this is something I don't hold to anymore. This is a doctrinal shift I've had in my own life, and I haven't made a big, big thing about it. But I think, and, and that's because I'm not suggesting that that means we're all we're all inherently good and we can like work our way to heaven or something like that no not at all not not at that i think there is original sin and that we're all fallen and we're all born in sin and the results the results of sin but not having committed sin that's where i would differ from this doctrine of original sin that has been um really very like it's it's supported by a lot of people like i'm i'm in a minority here on this on this issue but I'll tell you what, if you gather the texts of scripture that support the doctrine of original sin, you find that unlike most doctrines, like the doctrine of the Trinity or uh, doctrines of last things or like, you know, how salvation works, that you're saved by grace through faith apart from works, that kind of thing. These, these doctrines have like tons of, tons of biblical support, but the view of original sin that I'm actually guilty as a one day old infant, I'm actually guilty of having already committed sin, personally guilty. Right? You might call it original guilt. Um, that that view is actually supported by a scanty little group of scriptures that don't clearly teach it, in my opinion. This is why I've had to change my view. It's taken a while. It was originally wanting to defend the view, looking in and trying to find all the biblical support and then finding that I felt like it was lacking. So I've gone into this in more detail in my video um, about... It's my, I did two videos about infant salvation, like what happens to babies who die or people who die before they have the ability to, you know, acknowledge God. Um, and in that video, the second video, I did a follow-up called something like, um, like infant salvation causes these theological problems or something like that. And so I worked through that in that video. There's a video where I worked through it more thoughtfully, actually shared the scriptures and walked through them. All that to, to, to say, I had to say that because I'm not giving the normal answer here. Okay, and maybe I'm wrong and I'm open to changing my mind here. I still think you need to be saved by God's grace and everyone has everyone who's who's of moral accountable reasoning abilities, everybody has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, right? But I do I do think in, in babies and those who die without that ability are actually saved covered by the grace of Christ. Um all right, so behold I was brought forth in iniquity and sin my did my mother conceive me. What what is what is this? What is this saying then? Um well if we read into it, the idea that I was brought forth in iniquity, this means I have original sin that comes from Adam because in Adam I sinned and therefore I was already a sinner when I was born. Or, I mean, let me just say, does, does it not feel like I'm reading a lot into the text there? Like I would, I would say that's consistent with the doctrine of original sin, but I wouldn't say it teaches the doctrine of original sin. It's also consistent with a very poetic passage that's just talking about how messed up I am. Let's read this psalm in more detail. Um, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. What, what does this mean? I mean, there's something sinful about my very person. 
Okay, I would agree with that. That's my understanding of, of original sin, right? Is that, that we're a fallen people and that's we're morally fallen. We have we, we, we need to be redeemed and saved from our, our very nature, from who we are. I would agree with that, but that doesn't necessarily teach that I committed the sin that Adam committed in the garden. But it does trace it back to his birth, right? And his conception. I was brought forth in iniquity and sin did my mother conceive me. I, I, I get you there. I, I get what you're saying. Now, some have said, okay, perhaps it was um, David's mom did something sinful when he was born. Except the weird thing here is that David had older brothers from the same dad, right? This would imply that there wasn't like a fornication type thing going on in his conception, that that's not the thing that's going on. Um, yeah, I, all, all I would say is what you definitely get from Psalm 51.5, I think we should accept, my understanding of it right now, is that from the moment of his birth, from the moment of his conception, there was already something wrong with him. That, that I would agree with. And that, that's, you know, the fall of man. So I just don't think it gives us the idea that I, I actually sinned with Adam. And I think that's, that passage is in Romans 5. Um, let me find the passage too, since I'm already talking about it this much. Um, 5.12, is it? Okay, let's let's look at the verse here. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Um, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin was not is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even those whose sinning is not like the transgression of Adam, who is a type of the one who was to come. Let me come back to verse 14 in a second. That's actually a key verse here. Um but there's a specific verse I'm looking for. I, this is what happens sometimes when you're alive and you're thinking on your feet. You just don't find what you're looking for. Um, yeah, let's start at verse 10. For while we were re enemies, reconciled to God. Where is the verse? I'm sure you guys have probably posted it in the live chat. Somebody, no, no, no one's helping me today. I'm on my own. I'm all alone. I'm all alone. There's like a thousand people watching me. I don't know. All right, so. Um, but the phrase is in, in all of us, in, in Adam, all sin, in Christ, all are made alive. Is, is it Corinthians that I'm confusing? Anyway, so the phrase that in Adam all sin has to do with a Greek issue. And I get into this in the video I'm referencing to you now. And I'll, I'll put a link down below since I'm talking about it this much. I'll put a link down in the uh, video description below on this issue of infant salvation. Okay. And, and how that relates to original sin. I will link that down below. But here I want to point out verse 14 because it's a Greek issue. And I think the Greek doesn't teach what some people think it teaches. But here in verse 14, notice this, what it says about a lot of people who apparently didn't do what Adam did. Now, if, if Adam's sin is the sin I committed too, verse 14 doesn't make sense. Death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. Wait, doesn't original sin suggest that I, the normal understanding of original sin, typical understanding suggests that I've actually done the thing Adam did when he ate of the tree. It's like I did too. I'm guilty. I have guilt, personal guilt for what he did because I kind of did it too in Adam. I sinned, but I don't think that's the right way to understand it. And verse 14 seems to refute that in my opinion, because it's saying there's a, a group of people between Adam and Moses, a whole bunch of people and they sinned, but their sin was not like the transgression of Adam. It was a different sin because all of us have sinned and fallen short. I'm affirming that hundred percent question is the nature of that sin. All right. That's a lot of 
stuff there. Let's go to question number four. Uh, the Namus says, there's a lot of contempt within the body of Christ across the political aisle. How can there be genuine unity with those who differ so greatly in thinking when it comes to things like abortion or BLM? Um, uh, I think that the key for me personally, right? Okay, on the topic of uh, on the topic of abortion, it's a lot a lot easier. Black Lives Matter is a lot harder of an issue to me. Okay, so abortion. I'm going to talk openly here, guys. Maybe you don't agree with me, and and maybe it's healthy for you to not have the same opinion as me and to hear someone you disagree with talk about it for a little bit. Let me just talk about how I see this. Um, abortion seems like a very, very clear issue, abundantly clear issue. This is actually murder that's happening on, on a large scale and that we're accountable for this before God. And that it's probably next to the gospel itself it is the biggest moral issue facing our culture today. Far bigger than racism, far bigger than um, poverty, far bigger than anything else, I think, uh, abortion. Okay, I think that that's abundantly clear. I'm, I'm pretty solidly convinced of those extreme statements I just made on the issue of abortion. A Christian who has a different view. I love them. But I'm aware of the gravity of them being wrong on this issue. Now, if they're having no influence in others, then at least their wrong views are hopefully not actually resulting in anybody dying. But if they're influencing others because they vote for their views, because they support the people who are pushing these things of abortion, um, if, if, if they're influencing others, then their views are having grave consequences in the real world. And so I need to hold all that in my mind and heart and be aware of it, but I still care about that person. I just don't agree with them. I don't think that unity in the body of Christ means that we have to pretend there aren't serious, important issues we disagree on. I think we have to be open about it. It's just trying to handle that with an, with an element of grace, with the understanding of the kindness and love of God and Christ. If you say anybody who supports abortion, therefore, is not a Christian, I, could, I just think they're gravely wrong. I don't think they're not Christians now because of this. I think they're horribly, horribly, dangerously, viciously wrong. Those are, I think, accurate terms. But I, I don't think they're not my brother or sister because of it. I think Christians can be wrong in some pretty extreme ways because humans are just this kind of... We're moral beings and we make moral um, bad decisions. And this is the reality of things. So um, on the issue of Black Lives Matter, it's way more complicated because racism is real. Black lives do matter. And this is actually important that we highlight this. But then then like the, the actual organization Black Lives Matter is an ungodly organization, like with all kinds of agendas that go way beyond dealing with actual racism. Then you attach that to the ideas of critical race theory, which on one camp, you've got the conservatives saying critical race theory is this horrible thing you guys have to watch out. And on the other camp, you have people going, oh, it's just all those conservatives and evangelicals that don't like critical race theory. They're just a bunch of closeted racists. And, and yeah, that's a lot of division that's being created. Um, I've actually had conversations with people and uh, where it's gone both ways. They go, oh, no, I hear you. I hear you. What are your ob actual objections to, say, critical race theory, this kind of thing? And they want to hear it out. Other people, when they live in the realm of, I'm just being honest, when they live in the realm of, like, emotion, emoting about these issues, or if they think that um, real racism means you automatically, like, critical race theory simply is the solution to racism, then it's hard to have um, a conversation because everything you say is viewed as racist at that point. And that makes things difficult. I think that uh, as Christians, then, Maybe the solution is we start with our our uh, submission and commitment to Jesus Christ as Lord. That's the most important issue, even above and above abortion, above critical race theory, above Black Lives Matter, above masks and vaccines and COVID and um, you name it, above political pundits and all that. 
you you care about Jesus and his lordship first. And if you really do care about that first, it will change the way you handle all the other issues. Even if you continue to disagree, that seems like wisdom to me, but, but these issues do matter. Yeah, it, it's tough. It's a tough thing. It's a tough thing. I, I've never divided over a, with a Christian. Like I won't fellowship with you because of Black Lives Matter, critical race theory, the issue of abortion. I've never divided on those issues. But I do want to talk about them with people if, if I think that their views are having real-world negative consequences for themselves and others. There's what I think. God give us wisdom. Um, I think those are biblical realities. Um, one of the one of the problems, one of the objections people have, say, to critical race theory and Black Lives Matter, that movement, not the idea that Black Lives Matter, my goodness, of course, that's a, that's a beautiful and proper and good idea. I don't have a problem with that. I would actually say it if it wasn't attached to a, this messed up uh, organization that's using the power of, of opinionated people to push their own agendas that a lot of people aren't even aware of. Anyway, that being said, um, uh, uh, I just lost my train of thought. <laughs> so, yeah, whatever. I'll move on. I have no idea what I was about to say. Um, yes, genuine unity starts with centering our hearts and lives upon Jesus Christ. That's the, that's the beginning. And then realizing that you're going to try to bring the truth into that. Oh, and let me add one more thing. Talking points don't help too much here. Um, trying to understand other people's views, that's good and healthy. But it's also not enough to just, oh, let's just let's just have a conversation. Like all we're doing all day is having conversations where everyone expresses their opinion and nobody ever like says, but that's wrong. That's not healthy either. This creates all kinds of weird dissonance in, the, in your own relationship with God. I'm talking too much about this issue, so for the sake of time, I'm going to move on. BT, or Bea T, says, aside from tithing and prayer, oh, and by the way, no more questions today, guys. We're, we've got our full 20 questions list, so you can stop putting them. I mean, if you keep putting them in there, that's fine, because you don't have to, and we won't be able to get any more today. We answer 20. Um, so Bea T says, aside from tithing and prayer, what are good ways to support my pastor? Would it be weird to send an email each week thanking for the sermon? I have a social disorder, so I'm always unsure. Thank you, Pastor Mike. Um, the, uh, good ways to support a pastor. I mean, I'm a pastor. I've been for a long time. What are good ways people support me? I think, uh, I think, you know, when you give to the church, whether you call that tithing, that amount or not is irrelevant to me. But when you support the church financially, you're helping support the staff of the church and the functions of the church and the outreaches of the church. And that's a great way to support your pastor. Um, another way, if you feel that he needs support, is just, um, here's a thought. Um, just be just be friendly with him. <laughs> just be friendly with him. Um, it's nice when a pastor hears things like, hey, that really ministered to me and you give him honest, genuine feedback. I would say if you want to give good feedback to people, only give it when it's real, when it's honest and true. So don't feel like every week I have to encourage him. Like, what if it wasn't a very good sermon? Then don't. Don't do that. Don't, don't be fake. None of that's needed. The pastor doesn't need to feel, and hopefully he doesn't need to feel like he's like above and beyond, but he just wants to, you know, those who are doing ministry want to want to feel that what they're doing is having an impact. Um, another thing is to just remember that he's just a human being and treat him like a human being and just he's not only there to feed people and serve people, he's also just a person and you could just say, "Hey, how's it going?" you know, but not like I'm checking up on you. Like it's not always a spiritual checkup like everybody's walking up to the pastor with a thermometer to check his spiritual temperature. That's going to create an awkward environment. But I, I'm just suggesting that um, you, want, you guys go out to lunch and you just talk to treat him like a normal person, right? Not like 
he's the spiritual guru while we're eating lunch. Like I'm just suggesting that that might be a healthy thing. I wonder how many pastors would like that. <laughs> um, when you're in leadership, this is, this is a symptom for leaders across the board. When you're in leadership, you tend to be disconnected from the people you lead. It happens consistently. People view you differently because you're an authority now. And so they don't invite you to go get something to eat. They don't, you know, they don't just want to hang out because they feel like intimidated or feel like you might, you might have something to say about what they're doing or what they're saying or whatever. And this causes many people who are in leadership across the board, bosses, right, people in leadership tend to feel disconnected from the people that they serve or that they lead. And since the church is not a business, it's a body. This can actually create an unhealthy separation between leaders, pastors, and the congregants because they don't feel comfortable getting lunch with the person, that kind of thing. So I, that, that's where I'm recommending treating them like a normal person. I think that that's a good thing. Um, yeah. If you're intimidated by your pastor, just know that that probably creates alienation between the two of you. And you could just be like, you know, forget about it. I'm not going to be intimidated by this person. He's just a brother in Christ. It's nothing to, nothing to be worried about. All right, number six, Lori Conser says, do you know of any good Bible study resource for a group with no teacher, only facilitators? Oh, by the way, let me just add to the last one. Back up just a little bit. To the last one, I'll add this. Um, I think this is biblically consistent as well. So Paul did minister to people, but he also just like lived with them, right? And, and we read about this, but not only just in Acts, but also in his letters when he talks about them. Notice how many people he greets by name in the gospel, or not the gospels, in uh, Romans, 1 Corinthians. He like greets these people by name. He's like, tell so-and-so, so I'm sending so-and-so, he's my heart. I'm sending him to you. Paul had this intimate relationship with the people he was ministering to. Look at how John in the epistles, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, how intimately he writes to the people he's writing to. How um, Paul talks to Philemon in his letter, Philemon, where he's like, you could tell they're close. They are close. He doesn't just lecture to people. He lives with them. They're, they have a relationship connection. And this is the nature of the body of Christ is that we're relational with each other. I say all that to just say, look, I, I'm drawing these... I'm drawing observations from reality and just life, but I'm also trying to say this is, I think, a biblical thing where we have relations with people, connections with people. Remember when uh, Jesus called them as friends and they ate together. They slept in the same place. They, they traveled together. It wasn't a business relationship. All right. Number six, Lori Conser says, do you know of any good Bible study resource for a group with no teacher, only facilitators? Um... I'm really bad at this stuff, Lori. So the problem with a Bible study resource is you're looking for something that's like um, the kind of thing I never use. And I have looked at small group studies years and years ago. I tried to like do more small group stuff, like men's ministries, things. And what I found was that I just hardly liked anything that I saw. And I never really landed on stuff that I thought was really great. So um, I didn't continue to pursue that when I did do small group stuff. I would just come up with my own plan. Oftentimes we would just do like something like, we'll go through the Psalms and we'll talk about it or something. And and so, yeah, that, that has left a void in my own knowledge of resources like this. Good Bible study resource for a group with no teacher. I don't know a great resource for you to look at. Um, you, if you want, I mean, you're welcome to use my videos, my teachings. I, I know they're, they're longer and that might not work for a small group because you may not want like an hour long teaching and then you try to have discussion time. You might want something shorter and that's totally fine, but you're all welcome to use that. I know there's several groups that do meet and they use the videos of my, not my Q and A's, I don't think, but they'll use my, um, say the Mark series or first Peter Romans, um, one of the more verse by verse things or Jesus in the old Testament, that series. And they'll go through it with their group each week. Um, or you could chop it up however you want. You have my permission to do that in your in your groups if you guys would like. But yeah, other than that, I'm not really sure uh, what resource to suggest. 
Sorry, guys. All right, next question is Efosa uh, Asage Morgan, who says, looking for some guidance, at what point are we to shake off the dust from our feet, as mentioned in Matthew 10, 14, when trying to witness to friends, strangers, loved ones, etc. love your ministry? Oh, that's a great question, man. I love this kind of question because it gets down to like, okay, here's something that they, they did, Jesus told the disciples to do. When do I do it? All right. Let's look at it in context, and it may be a little bit more difficult to apply this than we thought originally. Jesus tells these uh, 70, I'm going to back up and read it to you. There's, um, oh, the 12, excuse me. This is him sending out the 12, and he sends them out before him. This is a really interesting moment in Jesus' ministry because usually he's with the 12. But in this particular instance, he actually sends them out two by two, and they go into various towns. And they've, I think at this point, they've, they've heard Jesus preaching enough that they can go and like, give the same messages Jesus gave and they could give the message of who Jesus is and uh, as much as they are aware of and they can repeat so they could give his sermon on the mount. They're going to go teach it, right? Um, so here we are in Matthew 10, 5. These 12 Jesus sent out instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town to the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now notice this. This is not Jesus's whole ministry command for them. This is literally one mission mission trip, you might call it, where he goes right now, at this moment, I want you to go out just to Jewish towns, to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, uh, not, not to those other towns. And proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick. Now, Jesus was proclaiming the kingdom. John the Baptist was, then Jesus did as well. And now they're going to echo those same messages. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You've received without paying, give without pay. They're, they're not to be paid as they do this acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts no bag for your journey or two tunics even not even two tunics or sandals or a staff obviously they're wearing sandals but no extra sandals no extra staff right then he says this for the laborer deserves his food this is actually a reference to the old testament paul quotes this later showing that paul who wrote before matthew was probably if you have a late date for matthew before matthew was written but he still seems to quote something that was known at the time yeah she's pretty cool stuff at any rate um, th in this mission, they're not to receive pay. Now, this is not to say, like, now you're going to be like, why are you backing up so much, Mike, and reading all this? Because I want to show you, this is not a command to all of us. Like, I'm not to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. This is not my command. The command to go out and, and not be paid for the ministry work you're doing, that's not a command for all people. This is literally like a, a missionary journey that's a lesson for them about how God will provide their needs. They're being taught to trust in God. So on this particular journey, Take nothing with you and watch God provide as you go out and you preach. Verse 11. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you Now, we don't follow this instruction. I don't go random towns and be like, who's worthy? I'll stay at your place. And he, worthy, he means people who are responding positively to the gospel. And they're like, hey, come to my home. I want to hear more about this. Like they're responding in a worthy manner. Um, as you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it's not worthy, let your peace return to you. This is to say, if the house rejects you, then you can move on. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake the dust, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Now he's saying when people reject you, not just aren't nice to you, but they're actually rejecting you. They're rejecting the message of the gospel, going out to the Jewish people who should be expecting it, who should be receiving it. It's their Messiah that showed up. When that message goes out and they reject you, you shake the dust off your feet, which implies that uh, the town is not sticking to you. The town is not, the house is not sticking to you. Or the idea is like, I wash my hands of this. 
Meaning I am no longer connected to you because I gave you the message and you rejected it. So now I, the messenger, will move on and I will deliver it to another message. But then, um, oh, let's see, there's an awful lot more. There we go. I'll get to verse 23. Um, then we get a justification as to why. Why is it that I'm shaking the dust off my feet? When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Now this passage, often taken by skeptics, to imply that Jesus was supposed to have his second coming in the lifetime of the disciples, uh, which is not, is in the context, is clearly not. Uh, I think this is obvious and it's weird that it's still used. I, I saw a video yesterday where someone tried to use this against Jesus. And um, I like that he's a false prophet or Jesus lied. That was it. The guy was saying Jesus lied. Actually, in all four Gospels, the, it, the context is better fitting when you look at it like this. I know I'm giving you a lot of data here, guys, but hopefully you're enjoying it. Um, Jesus tells them, go to just the towns of Israel. Don't go anywhere else. And, you know, if they persecute you, you shake the dust off your feet. If, they're, if they reject the gospel, just move on. Just keep going. Why? Because I'm on my way coming behind you. And as I come behind you, like this, you're preparing them for me. And as I come behind you, you're not even going to be able to do all the towns of Israel before I show up. So when your mission is in a hurry, when you have limited time, you respond more quickly to people rejecting your message. Here's where we can apply it into our lives. Shaking the dust off your feet isn't actually a command to all of us. It was a specific command for a mission trip for them at that moment. There's a principle. Hey, I'm not responsible for you rejecting the gospel. I'm just responsible for preaching it. That's a principle that's true. We can apply that. And we can also say this. When I have a mission where there's more people to reach than I have time to reach them, I am going to very quickly stop preaching to people who hate it and who reject it and who don't want to hear it because there's another guy over there that might be open to it. This is where I've seen some Christians make mistakes. They've spent years and all of their evangelism is directed at one person two people that they know and they don't evangelize anybody else it's only all directed at one or two people who are hard-hearted and aren't interested um the sad thing there is for some reason our mentality is but i'm doing evangelism so i'm good but if you would move on from that person and start reaching other people you may actually see you have a ministry of evangelism to lots and lots of people that's the message i think we're getting when people reject the gospel it's on them not you keep preaching that's a good lesson to learn all that being said, <laughs> I'm laughing at myself because I, I, I thought I'll be shorter today, but no, I'm not. I'm not even remotely shorter. Um, all that being said, your question is, at what point are we to shake off the dust from our feet when we're trying to witness to friends, strangers, loved ones, etc.? At the point at which they are, they have made a decision to reject and you don't see like, you don't see an avenue to, 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 to bring them back around, move on. I think that's fair. It doesn't mean you cut off the relationship entirely. It means you you don't focus your evangelical efforts on that individual. You you keep moving forward and you keep preaching to others as well. That that would be my way of applying it. Number eight, USMC Rebels says in Mark twelve twenty seven, Jesus says God is the God of the living, not the dead. Yet in Romans fourteen nine, Paul says he's the God of the living and the dead. How do I reconcile this? Oh, great. Good question. This is all about context. Um, in Mark 12, 27, just know this, the phrase God of the living, God of the God of the living and the dead, these are being used in different senses and contexts. So let's look at those contexts. Mark 12, 27. Uh, Jesus is making a case um, that God is, well, here it's a theological thing. So 
let's back. We have to just back up. This is how it is. The Sadducees came to him. These are the people who don't believe in the resurrection, right? This is what Mark even says to them. And they asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses wrote for us. They're Jews, but they don't believe the resurrection. Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife and leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, what they're going to do is they're going to take this rule from Moses, um, the levy rate marriage where your brother dies, hasn't had a kid yet. You marry, you marry his wife. He's dead. So they're not, they're divorced. Uh, technically speaking, they're no longer married. You marry. And the first kid that is born gets the name of your brother so that his inheritance, his land in the land of Israel can stay with his bloodline. And so this is not a rule for Christians. This was a rule under the Mosaic law. So, um, then they offer a dilemma based on this. They go, yeah, because, well, you'll see. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her, and he died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise, and the seven, all seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman died also. So then their dilemma is, look, here's a woman. She's had seven husbands. They each died one, you know, one by one. In the resurrection, when they rise, again, whose wife will she be? Now, this is... Um, this is where questions are presented as though they're arguments, right? This is a skeptical question saying, hey, I have, I have a problem with your idea of a resurrection. It doesn't work. God can't, we don't live after we die because whose wife will she be? It creates a dilemma that can't be solved. Jesus responds and says, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Like you think God can't solve this problem and you don't know what the word says about it. Then he gives his case uh, well, he gives an explanation and then he's going to give a case why the resurrection is real, why those who've died aren't really dead. Catch that this is, this is clever of Jesus. Verse 25. When they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. When they rise, there is no marriage. That answers that question. Then he moves back right off of that. Okay, she's, not, she's nobody's wife and in, in, there is no marriage in heaven. There's, she's nobody's wife in eternity. And as for the dead being raised, let's just prove that there is resurrection in scripture, that there is this future life. Have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, this is the burning bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am, current tense, present tense, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were all dead when God said this to Moses. Hundreds of years had gone by. Jesus makes an exegetical point. He says, he is the, not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You are quite wrong. When, uh, when God says, I am Abraham's God, I'm Jacob's God, I'm Isaac's God, he meant I'm currently their God. And well, if you're dead, you don't have a God. You, God isn't your God. If you're dead, you don't exist That on the, on the Sadducees view. But if there is an eternal life and physical, bot, physical death is not the end of things, well then Isaac, Jacob, Abraham, they can still, they can still, uh, it can still be said of them that God is their God currently. Okay. Back to your question now, uh, which was number eight here. Um, okay. Mark 12, 27, Jesus says, God is not the God. Of, God is the God of the living, not the dead, right? Uh, this context is simply, he's not the God of the dead, meaning dead, dead things can't have gods. That's what it's saying. Dead, dead isn't, you just don't exist anymore. That kind of understanding of death that Sadducee understanding of death, that uh, they, then you wouldn't have a God. But in Romans 14, 9, Paul says that, he, that Jesus is Lord of both the dead and of the living. Ah, but now the word dead is something different, okay? The context different. There's no Sadducee in debate going on here. They're not viewing the word dead here as um, those who stopped existing because there's no resurrection. You just, your body dies. That's the end of you. That's not the debate that's going on here. Instead, 
he means that Jesus is the judge of the people who are alive now and those who've already died in the physical sense, like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, but they still have some future. Uh, does that make sense? So what we've done is we've taken the phrase Lord of the dead and God of the dead, and we've 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 made them act like they're we thought they're you know saying the same thing when they're actually saying different concepts. Jesus is the judge of those who have died and of those who are alive. And when he returns, he will judge all people, those who've already died and those who are still alive when he returns. And so with um, Mark, it's different. I hope that makes sense. Next question, number nine. I'm going to move fast now. I promise. Uh, Susie Austin, does God want us to ask him questions and look for the answers in scripture, even if the Bible does not specifically deal with the question? Thanks. Yes, Susie, I think that's a great thing to do. Um, for instance, you know, the, the uh, Sadducees asked a hard question in the example I gave in Mark 12 just now. Hey, whose wife is she? And then Jesus used scripture to answer the question. He's like, look, of course the resurrection's real. Look at what he says to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now you wouldn't have thought that what, that what God says about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you wouldn't have initially thought this, is a, this was affirming something about eternal life. But if you look carefully at the text, you realize it's only consistent if it does affirm this about eternal life. So in other words, you can look at the nuances of scripture. You can look at, at these things. And, and I do this all the time where I come up with a question I haven't had before. And then I go through the scripture and I'm looking for indications where there might be hints and suggestions. The only thing I recommend is measuring your confidence based on how much support you have in the text of scripture for your conclusion. Sometimes we, we get ideas and we just like them. Like I've seen this many times, I'm sure you have too, where someone has a wrong interpretation, but they can't let it go because they like it. It's like something they like. And so we have to be aware of this. Like I might have a tendency to go, I like that interpretation and to push it, even though it's not true. So humility, a dose of humility and the ability to change our minds as we approach the scripture with these questions is healthy, but I think it's a good thing. I think that, um, as I do this, the scripture is very, very rewarding to me. When I looked at infant salvation, I'll give you an example of something I mentioned earlier. Um, I feel like scripture actually has a lot to say about this that's really good. Some of the verses people use, I actually ended up saying, don't use that verse, that's not good. Um, when I look at um, uh, Jesus in the Old Testament, there's kinds of stuff, there's stuff there that I find that's just mind-blowing. So yeah, please do that. Ask questions, look for the answers in scripture, and don't force them is the only thing. Ed Mola has a question, says, is there any historical evidence for any of the prophets of the Old Testament or for any judgments God pronounced on people? Um, there is some, uh, this isn't an area I've I've got like a sweeping knowledge of, so I, I couldn't tell you like all of the above. Um, there's a book you might be interested in. It's kind of thick and heavy. Let me see if I can find it. Um, oh man, I'm not. I, I know it's back there. Anyway, there's a number of books people have written. I apologize. I can't, I don't see it off the top of my head here. Um, that, that just goes through like tons of archeological stuff and suggests when they connect. And so some of the prophets, many of the prophets, individuals, um, some of the environments around the prophets, like a city that this prophet visited, the circuit, this prophet went around and we could confirm this or that about it. Um, some some of it I feel like there's stronger evidence for that we have present. You have, you have to understand too the archaeological record is like Swiss cheese. We we only have 
of all the stuff that happened back then, we only have evidence in the ground of so much of it. Of the evidence that's in the ground, we've only actually dug up a very small percentage of that evidence. And so this is the this is the dilemma with archaeology. In addition to that, archaeology is this massive discipline where they'll spend a decade at one location just digging one spot. So trying to get to the point where you can summarize archaeological discoveries across the pages of scripture is is a lifetime of research, which is why I have pieces of information about individual things. Um, they've, they've found some evidence that suggests things to confirm a lot of stuff that we found in scripture. There's other times where questions come up, like a, uh, excavations at Jericho are a really good example of this, where you have like one archaeologist who's like, look, this really confirms the biblical record. Then you have like another one who comes in and says, no, this is totally against the record. Then somebody else comes in and goes, what's all this stuff in the corner that they uh, catalog, but she didn't write about in her, in her papers. And then they dig it up and they go, wait a minute, that actually challenges her own theories. And so it starts to get very complex. It's the nature of archaeology. Yeah. I want to do more on archaeology. I just, I just recognize it's a discipline. It's kind of over my head unless I just tackle little pieces of it. So number 11, Bradley Davis, how do you separate the parable of the talents from a works-based salvation? Um, let's look at the parable of the talents. It's very often that the parables are used to try to demonstrate um, works-based salvation. I, I see this, uh, like say Catholic debaters, they'll go, to, they'll go to the parables. And one of the questions I want to ask is this, do these parables intend to teach us how we get saved? Right, and if they do, why is it that what Paul says later would seem to be so different? Paul's actually trying to explain how salvation works, how you are saved. Galatians gets into this in detail. Romans gets into this in detail. Right? He, 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 he talks about this, like you're saved by grace through faith apart from works. That's kind of important, right? Um, well, let's look at the um, parable of the talents. Just two seconds. Let me get there. Um, Matthew 25. <coughs> Pardon me. And we're going to start in verse 14. For it will be like a man, and this is speaking of what the kingdom of heaven is like, like a man going on a journey uh, who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one, he gave five talents. The talent here is a, a large amount of money. It's not a talent like a skill. It's, a, it's just unfortunate that in the English, the word talent happens to mean that. Maybe there's an application that's there, but that's not the meaning of the word. To another two, uh, two talents, which is the, each of these is a massive amount of money to another one to each according to his ability. Then he went away. So he gave them each an amount of money based upon how much they had the ability to be faithful with. Um, he who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more, but he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, verse 19, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. There's this long delay. This is the, the location. Of this is interesting because in Matthew 24, some think Jesus is, is like saying, uh, he's about to come back right away. The second coming is going to happen right away. This connects to what we talked about earlier. Uh, but but after he tells this stuff about eschatology in Matthew 24, he gets to Matthew 25 where he gives parables about a long delay, a long delay before the coming. 
Uh, and he who had received the five talents came forward bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I've made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will, sit, I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I've made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. This we'll find is, is um, perhaps there are layers of deception that are going on here because it's actually safer to do something with the money than to hide it in the ground. Then he says, here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful or lazy servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I've scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. At least there'd be some security there, right? And then some interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has had the 10 talents. Now, at this point, you could say, hey, this is about rewards. This is just about rewards. Um, if you're faithful with what God gives you, you'll get greater rewards in heaven. But look at what happens ultimately to the servant who's not faithful with what God gave him with in the analogy with this, with the master gave him for to everyone who has more will be given, uh, will more be given and he, he will have an abundance, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away and cast the worthless servant into outer darkness in that place. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now these are words Jesus uses weeping and gnashing of teeth, outer judgment to refer to like um, those who are outside the kingdom. Okay, they're just not in the kingdom at all, at all. Now, the assumption you have to make, I think, to take this parable and make it about works for salvation is to assume that the servant was saved, right? He's saved, he's, he's in Christ, and then he's not faithful with his giftings and with the things God gives him, and then he's outside of Christ at the end of the parable. But in the parable, you have a master, you have servants, you have responsibilities, you don't have any statements about who is saved and who is not saved. Those are assumptions we're making as we talk, as we look at the way Paul talks about salvation, and we like layer it on top of the parable as if it was Paul's parable about salvation instead of Jesus's teaching about those who are faithful with what God has given them. If we look at, uh, just like Paul does, here's where we can merge Paul and Jesus, I think, well, if we look at the way that Jesus talks about salvation and the way Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit, then we can see that those who are in Christ will naturally bear fruit from the Spirit and that it's possible to interpret the parable that the man who had one talent and buried it, hid it, didn't want anything to do with it, didn't do anything for the master, that this isn't this this would be like a person or similar to a person who was not saved, who didn't have the Holy Spirit, and who ended up not being faithful with what God gave them. So that, that I think makes sense. And when Jesus talks about there being tares in the wheat, there's being the genuine, uh, the wheat is the genuine disciples, the tares are the false disciples, right? And one of the ways that you see the difference between tares and wheat is you look at the fruit at the end. Now the fruit, tares are producing something that is, um, uh, it, you, you don't want to make bread with tares and it's like got a sleep agent. It's like kind of poisonous and wheat produces life-giving bread. Well, yes, the fruit is different, but that's because the plant is different. Matthew 25, to summarize, Matthew 25 in the parable of the talents, it doesn't tell you who the, what the plant is. It tells you what the fruit was. And the fruit might tell you what the plant was. He's a worthless servant, right? The, 
this man may never have had salvation. Matthew 25 is just focused on the fruit. I hope that helps. Um, question number 12, Joel Park says, Mike, what's your take on the Jewish interpretive methods for scripture, such as gematria? Um, and you, you reference Matthew 117 and Revelation 1318 or the Hebrew alphabet and pictographic symbolism. Okay, let me just answer these briefly. Um, Matthew 117, this is probably about the, the um, uh, genealogy. Um, yeah, okay. Um, all the generations from, okay, uh, Matthew gives a genealogy and he doesn't include every name. He skips some names. And then he summarizes at the end, this is a genealogy of Jesus, right? From Adam, he says, all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. So the, one of the reasons why he eliminates certain names, one of the reasons, I think there's multiple, uh, he just skips them in the genealogy, which shows you that in genealogies, it was okay to skip names. But um, one of the reasons he does it is because he wants to get 14, 14, 14. He wants these three 14s to be there. This might be a memory technique, right? You even see how he uses David twice, Abraham to David, and then David to the deportation, right? He's using David twice. So interestingly enough, David's name does equal 14. You take David, you take the Hebrew there and, it, and Hebrews, uh, the Hebrew language does have numerical value associated with each of the letters of the alphabet. That's the normal way they do numbers. They don't, they wouldn't do it the way that, you know, in English we do, where we have letters and we have numbers, they would use letters as numbers. So David means 14. Maybe he's drawing a, an interesting thing there that that's one possibility. Um, but it would only be, uh, probably, um, a memory trick, like is helping us remember Abraham to David, 14, David to the deportation, 14, the deportation to Christ, 14. It's, it's a memory aid. Okay. This isn't like a deep theological teaching where like doctrines are hanging on the numbers that connect to perhaps the name of David, assuming that we're making a right observation and that he means that. Uh, keep in mind, Matthew's writing this in Greek, not Hebrew. So he may or may not be trying to draw attention to David's name. So um, that sense, you know, some people call it, uh, would call it a gematria. I think that, um, um, sorry, I lost your question there, Joe, Joel. Um, Okay, so I don't think, I just want to be careful here. Just because we see numbers here being used in Matthew 117 doesn't mean that numbers are this key to interpreting the Bible and you can go and add up Hebrew letters all over the place. Uh, those These examples are really hard to find. Not that they don't exist, but they would be more like every once in a while, there's some numerical interesting thing going on here. Don't look at this as like a new layer of interpretation, digging into numbers where it starts to become a source of weird teachings because someone has something strange they want to teach and then they want to find it. Unless the text is pointing you to the numbers, as it may be in the David example or in Revelation 13, 18, where it talks about the mark, right? That's the other verse you mentioned. Um, the mark of the beast, then it's the number of a man and his number is 666. There's obviously some intentional calculating going on. So here I should look at the numbers and think about them, but not everywhere. So if you want to take it and call it like a Jewish interpretive method, such as gematria, no, 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 no. I don't want to like approach any random text of scripture. Rather look for like real clear reasons why you want to look at the numbers and consider the numbers here. There's got to be a reason to look at the numbers. You don't just want to start adding up numbers. Uh, this turns into weird things. So I, I've seen people get weird on this stuff. So I'm just going to caution, require some contextual reason for the number to matter and not just 
where people get a little weird. Now, on the other issue, um, pictographic symbolism. Now, I, I don't know what your point here is with the verse you offer, Psalm 119.73. You've made me and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. Um, you know, perhaps someone says Yod has a, some pictographic thing. Uh, I'm going to lean on others here, okay? This is not something that I'm, I mean, Hebrew especially, I'm, I don't have this deep knowledge of Hebrew by any stretch of the imagination, but I could lean on others who do. So uh, Dr. Michael Brown has a video he actually did on this topic and I'd recommend it. I don't agree with him on everything. He doesn't agree with me on everything. But on this video, I thought it was very fruitful. He actually went through these pictographic stuff and he talks about it and I'll give you the conclusions. Um, yes, Hebrew, ancient, ancient Hebrew, right? Like, like paleo Hebrew script or whatever. It, it has like these pictographs, these symbols that represent things. But those symbols came to just end up being letters. And the letters do not carry the meaning of the symbols anymore. And there are some who've kind of pushed the idea that in the Hebrew, like um, in the word, like maybe the word God, like, or, or the word for create or something like it has all these meanings. And each letter has a meaning. Um, this stuff, sh we should not be looking into this. Like this is, this is, I have looked into it in the past. It's really sketchy. Um, it's, it's just pulling, pulling the, the, uh, the, the Hebrew over your eyes. We're not supposed to, like, as we see in the text themselves, we're not supposed to take these letters and think that when we see like Aleph, we're actually seeing like a, a cow's head and therefore it refers to like a bull or a cow or something like that. This is not how we're supposed to interpret these these letters. That's just not how the language works. This is very much like a new thing. And one of the ways you can see this is wrong is in the same people I actually got the book and checked it out where because somebody I know was promoting this content and I was like, I gotta check into it. And one of the things they would do is they would say, okay, well, Aleph means this, and they would give it some special meaning. And then later they would give Aleph a different special meaning because Hebrew doesn't have that many letters. Like it's like 20 something letters, I think 21 or something, 22. And, you know, you have to start giving different special meanings to the same letters in these different words because it doesn't hold true. A lot of it turns into nonsense. Uh, Michael Brown's got a great video on it. Uh, Gamatri has some truth to it. The pictographic symbolism that we should be looking for, I think it probably doesn't have any truth to it. The idea that Yod means hand is, is what you pointed out. I wouldn't look into that at all. Um, under Yod, okay, I see why the connections there in Psalm 70, 119 verse 73. It's Yod. The psalm is arranged uh with the alphabet, each each section of verses starts with the letter of the alphabet. So Yod, um, your hands have fashioned me. Okay, well, Yod, me, Yod means hands. And he says, your hands have fashioned me. Uh, this could easily be a coincidence. But to go from there to like all the craziness that I've seen with this pictographic stuff, like Christians, you might get excited to think that like, I'm trying to remember one of the examples they gave, like bara create means like something about the cross. Like, no, it doesn't. Like that's... This is exciting, but it's not true. So I don't want to get excited about it. 13, Jennifer McClure, how long did the 10 plagues of Egypt last? Was this a con consecutive event? I mean, on uh, Jennifer, I haven't like deeply thought on this question, but my for my reading of the passage, it seems like it was pretty consistently going on, that it didn't last that long. Um, that's my reading of, of Exodus there, is that there's a plague, uh, I don't know of any one of them that seemed like it lasted an extremely long period of time. I'm trying to think if there's a scripture that maybe answers that question more specifically, but it's not coming to mind. So number 14, Tom Van Heist. Dear Mike, I'm studying 1 Corinthians 11. I'm really struggling with verse 7 
Uh, it says that woman is the glory of the man. What's your opinion of what this glory means? So 1 Corinthians 11 verse 7. Um, I don't have any, I get questions on this verse all the time. I just have to admit to you guys, I don't have a clear teaching for you on this passage, but let's see if I can at least try to answer the glory concept. Um, okay. So for a man, the head covering thing, again, I don't have the clear answer for you on that, but a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but a woman is, but woman is the glory of man. And then he goes on to kind of explain this concept a bit for man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Now, the connection to creation that he gives here suggests this, that man, God made Adam in his image, and then he made uh, the, the male, right? Adam in his image, and then he made um, Eve from Adam. And so there's, there's some sort of, okay, male and female are clearly in the image of God. Men and women are both in the image of God. So it's not suggesting that woman is not in the image of God here. Genesis very clearly says he made male and female in his image. So they both are. But here it's talking about the relationship of male and female to one another. And this is something that the implication of the glory of man is that there's something that God, wonderful God did out of man and it was woman. And then he created a man from the dust, created a woman from the man. I think that's the parallel he's drawing there. And I think that what, what Paul's doing is he's suggesting that there's teaching, like authoritatively teaching us that there is a, um, a, an interrelationship between the man and the woman that does relate to the authority in the relationship. And you can see my teaching on like uh, wives submitting to their husbands. I do have a teaching on that. I'm not, don't shy away from that topic at all. And that that's part of the creation thing. This is like what God designed. He wants this to be in place. It's part of the glory of how God has made us to interact with each other. Um, sometimes in our culture, I think most Christians aren't like this. But sometimes in our culture, we hate the idea of submission. Right? We hate it. And so saying that one has to submit to another is a way of insulting them. But this is not a Christian belief at all. Biblically, submission is like, no sweat. Who do you want me to submit to? God, I'll do it. This is not considered a bad thing. Um, so yeah, glory is not an insult. Rather, it's talking about the relational nature of, hum of, of male and female, I think. All right, 15. Hi, Mike. So grateful for you. Question, why didn't God simply use the new covenant right away? Meaning, why didn't he just send Jesus much earlier in the world's history? Well, Betsy, let's do a little thought. Let's do a little thought experiment where we ask the question, what if, what if Jesus had come uh, when they were in Egypt? I mean, well, we've got several things. We don't need Israel. We don't need the law. Um, he's just going to show up. Maybe he shows up when Abraham's dead. Maybe Jesus shows up like right after the fall, right? Before the flood, even before Noah's flood, Jesus just shows up. Here's the thought experiment on how this would affect the world. Uh, one, the evidence for Jesus would be much less than it is now. What do I mean by that? Um, well, you know, in the first century, when Jesus shows up, the, the, uh, the codex is just starting to be used. The, this is a codex, by the way, this is a codex. It's a book, right? So uh, the codex or the book was starting to be used before it was scrolls. Books allowed people to cheaply reproduce, relatively cheaply reproduce large amounts of written documents. And so Jesus shows up at a time when records of him can multiply dramatically as compared to the amount of records that would exist if he had come a long, long time before. So today, when you're asking who Jesus is, you'd be looking at much, much more ancient uh, claims that have less evidence to support them. Uh, 
Jesus also shows up when the world population is just about to skyrocket and when the Roman road has been built. The Romans built these roads so they could travel with their armies from place to place quickly to put down rebellions and stuff. And the gospel is able to go out very quickly. So the gospel was able to travel from place to place to place super fast because of the, the culture and time and technology that was going on at the time. So Jesus comes at a pretty targeted time. The message would go out a lot slower had he come back at an earlier time, or had he come at an earlier time. Another issue that we might have is you have no Old Testament preceding Christ. So if there's no Old Testament, then who tells us who Jesus is? Like, how do I know who Jesus is? Do I just have writings from his disciples or claims from the about the disciples' writings, even though all the, you know, the paper trail is difficult to follow by that far back, which it would be. Um, that would be kind of difficult. But but I wouldn't be able to interpret him through the Old Testament. Now, the fact that I have an Old Testament, not just a New Testament, it means that I have like this interpretive lens for understanding who, who Jesus is. I mean, it is the Bible that keeps, that keeps Christianity Christian. It is those who want to reject the scriptures, individual books of the Bible, the whole, the whole of the Old Testament, uh, progressive Christianity often wants to just have a very, very Swiss cheese approach to scripture, right? Like we'll just let that part fall out. Um, it's the Bible that keeps Christianity Christian. And that wouldn't be there. I wouldn't have like, for instance, an understanding of Jesus's offering on the cross as a sin offering to pay for the sin of the world, unless I had the law of Moses that had established what that meant. I also wouldn't have Jesus fulfilling prophecies. So you have like Isaiah and Jesus fulfills these amazing prophecies in Isaiah. You have, you have um, Zechariah and you've got, I mean, you've got countless prophecies of Christ and pictures of Jesus. Like when Abraham goes to offer his son, and this is a picture of Christ, uh, the son of God being offered for our sins. When, uh, when all this stuff happens, what we're looking at is an elaborate and very thoughtful way in which, to my knowledge, God has given Christ at just the right time so he could his knowledge could spread to the world and the understanding of who he is would be tied to the work of God through Israel so that we would know he is the Messiah. When I say he's Christ, I'm like making a theological claim about how he connects to the Old Testament. He's the guy fulfilling all this stuff. So I think that um, it would actually be bad. Uh, th those are some of the reasons, and I, I really hope that you find them helpful. Um, that's why God didn't give the new covenant right away is because the new covenant doesn't make sense without the old covenant and countless people would have hijacked Christianity for their own purposes, if not for the scripture, constantly proving them wrong. But that scripture wouldn't exist if we just started with the new covenant. Those are some of the reasons why also doesn't it just show you how sovereign God is in history and human history that he works lives together. I mean, 66 books of the Bible, just the fact that the Bible is written by so many authors over such a period of time is itself evidence that I find very encouraging. Uh, Liam Conlin says, why are the genealogies of Jesus different in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke? Um, I'm favorable towards uh, uh, this. My view, I've heard people mock the, the view I have or laugh at it. That's okay. Um, there's always somebody laughing at you guys. Welcome to life. Um, but I, I think that Luke is giving a genealogy from Mary's family line and that Matthew's giving it from Joseph's. I think that's why. Um, Luke does show independent knowledge uh, uh, from Mary. It seems to be from Mary. Luke talks about how him interviewing different witnesses. He seems like he has Mary as, as an inside person. Matthew seems to give the father. Now, why would you need both genealogies, right? Wouldn't you just want Joseph? Well, well, I mean, if he's going to be called the son of David, then you want his fatherly line, but he has no earthly father. So we go through his adopted father. Okay. So Joseph, Joseph traces back. 
And if you go to um, Luke, why would we want to know Mary's genealogy? Well, because genetically, he's actually from Mary, not Joseph. And so we have both. I, I think that this is a good theory. Haven't heard it really refuted. I've heard people um, say, oh, that just doesn't work. But I haven't heard a good reason why. And when I've looked at the genealogies personally, and maybe I'll change my view on this. This is my current opinion. When I've looked at the genealogies personally, it 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 does seem to lend itself towards this. You look at the specific words being used, right, for son of or begot, right? These are different terms. And um, they seem to work well with that theory that one is like really a genetic line all the way down to Jesus. And the other one is... Um, a uh, patriarchal line that's not, you know, from an, an actual physical father. Um, 17, if a non-Christian, this is from Greg Nettles. Greg, thanks for your question. If a non-Christian asked you, what is the purpose of life as a Christian? What would you say? And what scriptures would you use as a reference? Um, the purpose of life as a Christian, um, I mean, it, it connects in a vague sense. It connects, not in a vague sense, but in a broad sense. That's a better term. It connects to God. Uh, the purpose of life connects to God. And of course, if God's the maker and designer of the world, I could appeal to Genesis, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Um, and you could appeal to like Ephesians, how it talks about God's foreknowledge and his purpose and plan in all these things. So that my purpose comes from God's intentionality in why he made this. Like my purpose comes from the why that God has as far as why he made this. And there's several reasons for it. I could look at it from the perspective of God's agenda, and we see there's several things that scripture says that come out of this. Uh, one is he just shows his glory. Um, Psalm uh, 19, I think it is, says that the heavens declare the glory of God. The earth shows the work of his hands. So one way in which I look at the purpose of things is the purpose of life is to show God just sh showing his glory. He's, he's revealing himself to us, like to us. So we get to see the glory and the goodness of God. But there's other things too. Like I think that life involves things like just normal, simple pleasures. Like that these are things, uh, scripture says that God gave uh, wine to gladden the hearts of man and, and bread to, to strengthen us. And that, that these are things that he, he actually wants us to enjoy. Every good and perfect gift comes from the father of light. So that God is just, he just wants to bless us. He like wants us to have pleasure and joy in life. But there's other purposes as well. And they all come together. If you, if you finally look at your relationship with God, that God wants relationship with his creation. See, God makes man in his image. This is my view, right? Genesis Chapter uh, one, God makes man in his image, but then we're fallen and we're sinful. And then in Jesus, he takes on, in a sense, our image, right? God takes on humanity and then he dies for us so that we can be renewed and transformed. And then we can be what filled with the spirit so that now I can have a relationship with God. And that relationship's eternal. When you look at Revelation and you see the vision of heaven after the new creation of all things, the final result, you, you want to look at like what was the purpose of it all? Sometimes you look at the end of the story and the purpose of it all is this zoomed in look at this new Jerusalem, this new city where God is, is so present with us. He's so in us and with us that he, he is light. It says there's no need of sun anymore. It doesn't say there is no sun. It says there is no need of sun because he himself is the light and he's just permeating all things. He's with us, the scripture says there, and he is our God. Um, God has made us for eternal relationship with him and each other in Christ. The purpose is a redeemed people in a love relationship with the God of all creation, experiencing joy and pleasure and goodness for eternity. There's, there's my answer for that question. The purpose of life is that. And I think that if we look at our lives and we realize what our lives are like without relationship, we realize how powerful this is, that it's meant, it's meant to be relationship with God. But real relationship 
isn't much a relationship without choice. And, you know, if we're robots and I push a button and you have to like me, that's, it's not real relationship. It's not, it doesn't have the quality and the goodness of like the kind of love of free will choosing. I choose to know you and love you. So there's the option to know God or reject God. And that's part of the plan as well. Those are some of my answers there. And number 18, Robert Eldridge says, how can I help my Christian friend trust God? He reads the Old Testament and thinks God keeps making mistakes and tries to fix them. Uh, the snake in the garden, Noah's flood. He doesn't trust heaven will be better. Um, I'll be very honest with you, Robert. I'm not, uh, I hope your friend isn't listening, to be honest. I don't want them to hear me saying these things and think I'm trying to be critical because it's embarrassing to have someone talk about you. But but the audience doesn't know who they are. Only you know who this person is. So um, there are there's some kind of significant serious problem with your friend's perspective here. He thinks God's making mistakes. He's reading part of the Bible and he's just making up the rest. I don't know how else to put this. Um, obviously, the scripture is not teaching that God's making mistakes. Right? There, there's an intentionality and a plan going from the beginning to the end. So there's there's yes, there's a snake in the garden, but then there's Christ in the garden. Yes, there's there's the fall of man, but then there is the redemption that comes through Christ. And so we see there's a whole plan taking place here, but your friend somehow is getting fixated on half the story, fills in the rest of the details with his own mind, saying God's made a mistake. Um, I don't really know how to fix this person. Um, I once had a guy I was talking to like this, and he was talking about the garden. And, and he was like, why did God even put the tree there? Like, I'm just upset. And he literally meant, my life is, is bad. I've done bad things. But if it wasn't for that tree in the garden, I wouldn't be doing these things. So I'm upset with God that I am doing these things. This is what he meant. This was in a counseling thing. And I said, look, there's an answer to your question. But then there's another answer to your question. One, one answer tries to explain how God is not responsible for your decisions, how you're making choices. You're in a fallen world, yes, but guess what? You're making choices and God's providing solutions to those things, but you're making choices. I, so we talk, we could talk about that. I said, but there's another issue in this is, and this is what I would share with your friend. You know, you're not walking in wisdom. If you are shaking your fist at God, there can be no wisdom against God. There is no way on earth. I mean, like what folly am I in? If I literally think I know better than God, God, <laughs> the irony of this, this moment, like if I went up and I was talking to, um, a, a software engineer and he's telling me, um, yeah, the app can't work that way. And I'll go, I think you're making a mistake. I think it can work that way. Like, what do I know? I'm not a software engineer. Like, I don't understand how this stuff works. I would be a fool to think that I off the top of my head can, can fix all the problems of that. The professionals in those, in those jobs aren't able to fix, but how much more God, like, it, the irony and the, the the strangeness of this is that you have a human who knows this much about this much, who's shaking their fist at the God of all creation going, I think you made a mistake there. And this has to do with a general posture or attitude. And this is what concerns me about your friend or anybody who's in this, in this spot. The minute you're shaking your fist at, your, at God, you know you're wrong. You have to be wrong. You just don't have the humility to admit it yet. But the only person that's in a dangerous position is not the God you're shaking your fist at, but it's you who's shaking your fist at him. I, if I saw a passage of scripture that says God did this and I thought, I don't think that was good. I know I'm wrong. Why? Because have a, a modicum of respect for the God of all creation who, is in, who has all knowledge and all power and who knows all things, the beginning to the end. 
to just realize that if you disagree with him, you're probably wrong. <laughs> this, is, this seems like 101 kind of stuff. But but if you mess up here, you'll mess up everywhere else. So yeah. Um, that's what I would talk to your friend about. My, Madison Lopez has a question. Why do I feel nervous to pray? I want to, but it feels unnatural to me. Uh, Madison, I think that my counsel to you would be um, give yourself permission to feel nervous and to pray anyways. And give yourself permission to pray even when your feelings are weird. That's huge. That is absolutely huge. Where you're doing it because it's right, because it's good. And so but I remember talking to a husband one time who was like, you know, I'm, I'm trying to do nice things for my wife, but I'm struggling with like, am I really doing it for her or am I doing it because I'm trying to be a nice husband? Like sometimes I'm bothered by her and I'm still trying to be nice to her, but I'm bothered. So I feel like maybe it's not genuine. And I want to say like all of this like psychological battle that you got going on, this is actually distracting you from simply doing the task that you're being called to do right now. Let me check something real quick. Oh, I almost forgot about, oh, I did forget about something. Okay, I'll tell you in a second. Um... <laughs> I'm gonna run. Off. I'm gonna run off and get, grab something at the end. I have an announcement about um, some Bible thinker mugs. I'll tell you guys at the end of the stream. Um, so, all this to say, look, you and me, we're humans with all our weird psychological things we go through. Like, never let that stuff stop you from just doing the right thing. So, be nervous and pray. And I don't like that you're nervous, and you don't like that you're nervous. It's not fun, but you're gonna pray anyways because it's the right thing to do, and you're gonna serve the Lord in it. And as you just choose to do it, regardless. Like when I worship, sometimes I don't feel like worshiping. I just worship anyways. Now that was like a big, a big like block for me for a while. Like I would go to worship and I, I don't feel like worship. Like a lot of times I do, but right now I don't feel like it. And at some point I thought, Lord, you're worthy. Whether I feel like it or not, I'm just going to worship you regardless of my feelings. And that liberated my worship so much. It's not, it's not lack, uh, less than genuine now. It was just not dependent on my emotional state. That's a beautiful thing. So I say, I'm sorry you feel nervous when you're praying, Madison. Just pray anyways. Just pray anyways. Say, God, you know I feel nervous. I'm just going to trust you with that. Here I go. I'm going to pray. Just do the right thing. Just just love your spouse. Love your friends. Read the word. You're going through those feelings. Just give yourself permission to be weird in your heart and to press forward doing the right thing and serving the Lord. All right. Question 20. Michael Scanlon. Last question says, thanks so much for your ministry, Mike. Well, I'm very, very happy that I get to do it, Michael. I'm just pinching myself every day that we get to reach so many people and we get testimonies and it's, it's very exciting stuff. You said, I was wondering if the Bible mentions that the Holy Spirit was in the beginning with God, the Father and the Son, and where is the Holy Spirit said to be God? Um, oh, this is a great question. And um, there are scriptures that do mention specifically, I'm, I'm blanking on the passages probably because I'm tired and we've had 20 questions. But uh, <clears throat> we see the, the Holy Spirit active in creation um, we also see uh, the Spirit active in salvation. We see the Holy Spirit active in various ways. But there's also place where, places where scripture, the Scripture just calls the Holy Spirit God. Like the Holy Spirit's just called God. He is just called God. Um, so this happens in a number of places in the Bible. Now, I want you to think for a second what that means, right? What that means that the Holy Spirit is called God. I'm going to do a whole video on this one at some point in time. I think we need a video on the deity of the Holy Spirit. I think it would be good. Um but the uh, the implication is this: like, if the Holy Spirit's being credit, in, credited in creation, credited in salvation, and more importantly, just being called God in places, then there's there's only one option here: the Holy Spirit is God. Now, if you want to say the next question is right, look, but is the Holy Spirit a different person than the Father? Different person than the Son? 
Well, the answer there seems to be yes, right? The father, uh, like look at the baptism of Jesus. You have the father speaking from heaven, uh, speaking from above. And he says like, behold my son in whom I'm well pleased. You have the Holy Spirit descending upon Christ as a dove. Doesn't mean that he looked like a dove. It may just be an analogous thing, but descending upon Christ visibly. And then you have Jesus right there. So you have father, son, spirit, and they're all active in different ways at that exact moment. Um, the, uh, in the book of Acts where Paul, uh, Peter confronts Ananias and Sapphira because they lied and he tells them, uh, that they didn't lie to him. They lied to the Holy spirit. And then in the next breath, he says they lied to God. Wait, if you, if lying to the Holy spirit is lying to God, what does that make the Holy spirit? So those are some of the, some of the passages that I would I would refer to in Genesis. We do see um, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. Darkness was on the face of the deep and the spirit of God hovered over the waters. So here's the whole, here's the spirit present in this creation moment during these times when, you know, during this time in Genesis, when we're creations happening and we have the Holy spirit. Um, and another way to look at it is this way is, do you ever think God didn't have his spirit? <laughs> like, well, no, obviously not. Um, there's another, another analogy you can offer another point you can give so uh in the beginning with god the father and the son i i guess you what you might be thinking of is john one um yeah because john because genesis does mention the the holy spirit specifically in genesis one in creation god creates the heavens and the earth the spirit in fact you here let me actually take you okay john one doesn't uh in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god he was in the beginning with god but if the use of the word God here, uh, God's spirit is also called God. So it's implied in John one that the spirit is there because he is God. But in Genesis one, we have something very interesting. Uh, God created the heavens and the earth, right? The earth was without form and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep. The spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And God speaks creation into existence. So we have father, spirit, and then God speaking, God using his words to create is very similar to what we have in John 1, where the logos, the word, all things are made through him. So I think there's a connection between Genesis 1 and John 1 that's very interesting that we can talk about there as well. So, okay, <clears throat> I'm not kidding. I'm actually going to run away. I'm going to come back in like 20 seconds. You're going to have like 20 seconds of, of looking at my cat. Here we go. Cat video. And then I will be back with the new Bible Thinker mugs. If you guys want to buy these, uh, let me tell you about it. Because we're going to use this as a fundraiser for a mission couple that um, they can't get normal support because they have to be under the radar. But I know these people and I want to support them. And so $5 per mug is going to go to these to, to this couple. So I'll tell you about it in just a second. I'll be right back. <laughs> Give me like 20 seconds. Here's my cat. There it is. <laughs> All right. This is this is the, the new Bible Thinker mug. Um, <clears throat> so because we have a new logo, this is put on there. You know, if if this is something that you would enjoy, if you would like to drink your your, your cup of joe out of this thing or whatever, um, they are microwave safe and all that. <clears throat> I'm not making any money off of these. Nothing. I don't really want to. It just was a little that felt a little weird to me. Um, and it's also not the most efficient way to actually raise funds um, because it's like $5 per mug and the mugs are like 30 bucks. 
But Brent Zockel, he's a potter who loves this ministry, really has always been very supportive and encouraging to me. And he just wants to be able to make this stuff. If you want to buy them, I'll put a link in the video description below. I'm sure we can get a link in the chat from one of the mods, hopefully right now. And uh, look at the details. International shipping is weird. So make sure you understand the details. Maybe interact with Brent or his guy on this topic. But for each of these, five bucks is going to go to a missionary couple who doesn't get support from any sort of major organization, mission organization. They're going to remain anonymous because I want to protect their identities, but they're not, they're not allowed to do what they're doing. <laughs> and uh, they need support. Uh, we can help them out. And I, me and my wife support them. And we thought we could use this at least this month. This month, any of the purchases are going to go towards that. And I may pick other ministries to help support in the future with Bible Thinker mugs. Link down below and all that. Thank you guys so much for joining me. Uh, every Friday we do this. Monday, I'm not having my normal live stream. I'm doing a um, uh, a live stream, but it's not normal. It's with Vocab Malone. We're going to talk about Black Hebrew Israelites. That's this Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific time if you'd like to check it out. And I am working on the next video for the Passion Project. It's going to be tons and tons of editing still. I wanted to have it for you Wednesday, but I'm not sure if it's going to be that or maybe even a week later. We'll have to wait and see how it goes. Um, <clears throat> that is all. There's a link there below or in the uh, live chat right now that Sarah put for Zockel Pottery. Um, Again, yeah, new Bible Thinker mugs. Nobody has to buy this stuff. I'm not. I'm not even selling it. Right, the money doesn't come to me. That's important to me personally. I don't really want to be doing that kind of thing. All right, y'all. Have a great day. God bless you.